Welcome to our online Bible study. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. In the first section of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter emphasized walking in hope. But now, as we study verses 13 to 21, his emphasis is walking in holiness. Now, to walk in holiness is not always easy because the world is constantly placing stumbling blocks in our way and trying to keep us from growing in our Christian walk, right? But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21, Peter presented five spiritual incentives to encourage us to maintain a holy walk. First, we will be looking at the glory of God, as we see in verse 13. Then in verses 14 to 15, we will look at the holiness of God. In verse 16, we will see the word of God. And then the judgment of God in verse 17. And the love of God, we will look at in verses 18 to 21. So, let's go through these incentives. The first is the glory of God. So, let's turn in our scripture to verse 13. It says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind... Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 starts off with, therefore. So, whenever you see therefore, what do you do? You have to look back in scripture to see what it's referring to. What is it therefore? So, in order to do this, let's look back at verses 3 through 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay, so now we've looked back to the past. Now let's read verse 13 again. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in view of the fact that we are only temporary residents here, that we have an inheritance reserved for us in heaven, as we are here on earth, we will only go through various trials. Therefore, we are to gird up the loins of our mind. Now, girding up the loins, Peter here is, uses an oriental expression referring to the fact of gathering up around us, around his waist, the long, loose eastern robes which would impede the progress in running or other exertion. But notice Peter says to gird up the loins of your mind. What does he mean here? It is not a physical exertion that Peter has in mind. It is a mental one. If the purpose of girding up the clothing 
was to put out of the way that which would impede the physical progress of an individual, then girding up the loins of the mind would be the putting out of the mind all that would impede the progress of the Christian life. For instance, things such as worry, fear, jealousy, there's hatred, unforgiveness, and impurity. All of these things harbored in the mind prevent the Holy Spirit from using the mental faculties of the Christian in the most efficient manner, impeding the growth of their Christian walk. The word to gird up is in the aorist tense, which refers to a past once and for all act. Bringing this oriental expression over to the occidental manner of thinking enables us to translate it, saying, Therefore, having put out of the way once for all everything that would impede the free action of your mind. Peter treats this as a God-expected obligation on the part of the believer. Peter commands a mental Discipline that does not allow our minds to follow ungodly thoughts that are untrue. Christ's followers are to keep their minds tightly guarded in the truth. A believer who fails to do this will only allow untruth into his mind and will be therefore what they call double-minded. So, gird up the loins of your mind. Simply means pull your thoughts together have a disciplined mind. When you center your thoughts on the return of Jesus Christ and live accordingly, you escape the many worldly things that would encumber your mind and hinder your spiritual progress. Now, not only should we have a disciplined mind, but the scripture here in verse 13 goes on to say, that we are to have a sober mind also. Now the Greek word here for sober means to be calm and collected in spirit, to be temperate and well balanced. It speaks of the proper exercise of the mind, that state of mind in which an individual is self-controlled and is able to see things without the distortion caused by worry, by fear, and those other related attitudes. Now, we are not able to see all these things all the time, but we are not to be naive. We are to be aware of the dangers and pitfalls around us. It doesn't matter who you are. If you are a child of God, Satan is just waiting to step in and bring you down. But through it all, we as Christians are to be fully aware of God's truth. We should not be controlled by the circumstances around us, right? Rather, we are to remain faithful to God's truth. Again, here, the idea is one of tightly controlled discipline. Now, I learned some very devastating news this week. Pastor Paul Shepard, some of you may know him. He is a pastor that my husband and I listen to all the time on the radio and on the internet he was a man who preached the word of God and told it like it was. Well, he fell in sin and his ministry has been destroyed. This was a man 
that was touching a lot of people's lives in Christ, encouraging them to live godly lives. And Satan found his weakness and used it to stop his ministry. It is so sad. He raised up a church from 34 people up to 6,000. His ministry was went all over the world. And Satan brought him down. He's no longer on the radio. He's no longer on the internet. And his website simply has a statement, Pastor Paul Shepard resigned for immoral issues. Ladies, this is why it is so important to gird up the loins of our mind, being spiritually disciplined, making sure that we are making every moment of every day count for Jesus Christ, keeping our minds focused on the goal. Watch for those things in your day-to-day walk that doesn't go with Scripture. Don't allow Satan this kind of victory. In Peter's exhortation, he brings us back to the foundation of our faith, the grace that has been given and will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Looking for Christ's return strengthens our faith and hope in difficult days. Knowing that our time here is only for a little while helps to endure those times of trials. Peter exhorts us, to set our hope perfectly, wholly, and unchangeably without doubt and despondency upon our future glorification. Now, one commentator said it was something like eating a five-course meal at a home of Mrs. Charming Hostess. While we are enjoying this delicious meal, we are not worrying whether there's going to be dessert or not. We know it is on the menu. And it is going to be brought to us as soon as we are ready for it. Ladies, we know the Lord is coming, right? We know he is going to return. And we can live each day to glorify his name. Christians live in the future tense. Their present actions and decisions are governed by this future hope. Just as an engaged couple makes their plans in light of their future wedding. So Christians today live with the expectation of seeing Jesus Christ. Outlook determines outcome. Attitude determines action. A Christian who is looking for the glory of God has a greater motivation for present obedience than a Christian who ignores the return of God. Let's look at our second incentive, the holiness of God, as we look at verses 14 to 15. Let's read this. It says, As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This call to obedience of God's standard is a call to holiness. It is most fundamental element. Holy means set apart, right? 
So the believer no longer serves the world system into which he was born. As the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer, there is a natural displacement of this world's influence, which is replaced with the precepts of the Lord. The holiness of God calls forth the strongest motivation for obedience. So the believer's conduct should therefore reflect this relationship. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. It says, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Be holy is an imperative, a solemn command. Peter told believers that God who called them holy and he is to be their standard or their pattern in their way of life. Citizens of Christ's kingdom do not really have a choice, do they? but are commanded to be holy, to be set apart, to be different from the world and aligned with the kingdom of God of Jesus Christ. Now when we talk about being different from the world, we're not talking about being odd, but the quality of our life is different from the world. Our present life is different from our past life, right? We have grown spiritually. Our lifestyles are different from those of the unbelievers around us, or at least it should be. Let's look at Titus, chapter 2, verse 14. Here we are called peculiar people in the King James Version. It says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all inequity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now here, we are called different. We are called peculiar when you think of peculiar people, you might think of someone who is odd or strange, right? Someone might even think of the Catman. That might come to their mind. I don't know how many of you know of this gentleman, but he is a Native American Indian whose chief told him to follow the ways of the tiger. He took that advice literally. He is the most modified person in the world. He has had plastic surgeries to make himself look like a tiger. He has had his lips split, his teeth modified, implants placed in his face to make him look more like an, a cat. He has had his ears pointed, piercings to place on his face to place the whiskers, and he has had many tattoos. Now he has gone through great lengths here to look like a cat. So you might think of him as being a little peculiar. But that is not what the scripture means when it states in, in Titus 2.14 that we are peculiar people. But this is how the unworld, the unbelievers kind of see us, don't they? They see us as being peculiar. The word here translated from the Greek word, which is made up of two words, one which means around as a circle, and the other which means to be. 
Now we're going to chart this to understand here the combination of the two words to get the full meaning. Think about the first word here, a circle. I want you to draw a circle. Now, place a dot which represents the second word to be within that circle. You are that dot. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and God is the circle around you, as the circle is around the dot, so God is around each one of his saints. We belong to him, totally surrendered by him, protected by him. Ladies, this is a wonderful picture of how God protects and guards his children, isn't it? Now, I want you to think about this as we study the book of First Peter. As we go through trials and persecution, remember this circle and this dot. Now, to continue with this, I want you to place another dot outside of the circle. And I want you to draw an arrow from that dot to the dot inside the circle. And I want you to put a label on that that says temptation. Okay, now, draw another dot outside of the circle and draw another arrow that goes from that dot to the dot inside the circle. And I want you to label that dot trials and testing times. Now, notice here that the arrows cannot reach the dot inside the circle except it goes through the circle Right? So temptation, not trial or testing, can reach us except what? It goes through the permissive will of God first. Ladies, as we walk in the center of God's will, he will not permit Satan to confront us with a temptation too great for us. He will not allow us to go through any trial or testing time that we can't handle. Remember Job and how God allowed Satan to bring the trials and temptations into his life. God does allow us to go through those, but he also puts limitations. It has to go through him for that permission. How encouraging to know that God sees everything. He is fully surrounding you and will provide us with that necessary faith and spiritual strength to overcome any temptation and the grace needed to bear that trial. He will give us that peace that is beyond our understanding. Now please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Look at chapter 10, verse 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as in common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So yes, we are different peculiar people. And yes, God is there to give us a way of escape if 
We are living within his will. We are to be holy in all manner of conversation, as it says in the King James, meaning all of our being, all of our behavior, how we act in our life, so that everything that we do reflects the holiness of God. Ladies, let's move on to our third incentive, the Word of God. Let's look at verse 16. It says, Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter called upon believers their reverence for the Old Testament by referring to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, where it says, Ye shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. He says, It is written. A statement that carries great authority to the believer. This was Christ's defense when he was tempted by the devil, right? He said, It is written in Luke 4 4. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. But when we think about the word of God, it is not only a sword for battle, is it? It's also a light to guide us in this dark world. Psalms 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Then as we see in 2 Timothy 3.16-17, it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word reveals God's mind, so we should learn it. God's heart, so we should love it. God's will, so we should live it. Our whole being, mind, will, and heart should be controlled by what? By the Word of God. Now, we do not study the Bible just to know the Bible, do we? Just for our head knowledge. We study the Bible that we might get to know God better. Remember, this is the living Word of God. It is good to know the Word But this should help us to know the God of the Word. Our fourth incentive, the judgment of God. Let's look at verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. As God's children, we need to be serious about sin, don't we? We need to be serious about holy living. Our Heavenly Father is a holy and righteous Father. God, Peter says, judges each man's work with impartiality. When you think about God judging you, you may think about Him being a critical judge, trying always to find a defect or a flaw in our conduct or our service. But the Greek tells us differently. 
That is, God's impartiality is an honest appraisal of things. While his heart is always with his children and goes out to him in a spirit of love. That is beautifully brought out in the use of a particular Greek word in 1 Corinthians 3.13. Which verse and its context refers to the judgment of the believer's works at the judgment seat of Christ. It says, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now here the Greek word means to put to the test in order to sanction or approve the good one finds in that person. 1 Samuel 16:7 says, For the Lord does not see a man as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Each of us will give an account for his works, and each will receive the appropriate reward. The question would be is, when we are judged Is there going to be a bonfire or are we going to have crowns to throw at his feet? God will search into the motives of our ministry. He will examine our hearts, but he assures us that his purpose is to glorify himself in our lives and ministries. He is not there to tear us down. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. What an encouragement. Will he be able to say, Good and faithful servant. In view of the fact that the Father lovingly disciplines his children today and will judge their works in the future, we ought to cultivate an attitude of godly fear. Now, this is not a cringing fear, but the loving reverence of a child before his father. Now, it is not a fear of judgment, but a fear of disappointing him of sinning against his love. It is a godly fear, a sober reverence for the Father. And last, our fifth incentive, the love of God. Let's look at verses 18 to 21. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Please, this is the highest motive for holy living. 
In this paragraph, Peter reminds each believer of their salvation experience, a reminder that all of us regularly need. When you read this scripture and are reminded of what was done on your behalf, that you were chosen to be with God throughout eternity before the foundation of the world, it ought to make you drop to your knees, praising and thanking God for saving your soul. Peter reminds us that it took that precious blood of Jesus Christ to redeem us so that we could spend eternity with him. That mere silver or gold wouldn't do it. This is not enough money in the world, not enough precious metals that could buy your way to heaven. Remember, silver and gold are corruptible. They cannot last for eternity, right? But the precious blood of Jesus Christ does, and that's what you need to sustain you to live with Christ for eternity. Salvation is not anything that you can do to attain it. It is a gift. In calling Christ a lamb, Peter was reminding his readers of an Old Testament teaching that was important in the early church and it should be important to us today too. It is the doctrine of substitution, an innocent victim giving his life for the guilty. Now ladies, it was not an accident. It was not by chance. It was foreordained before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would shed his blood to save our souls. Romans 8, 38-39 says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ladies, there's nothing, not anything that can separate us from the amazing love of God. Because God loves you so much, He protects you. You have been redeemed by the precious blood of His own Son. Therefore, you are of great value to the Almighty God. John 10, verses 28 to 30 says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Notice this verse shows you that you are in the Savior's hand. You are safe and secure in His hand. No man, not anyone, can take you from His hand. You are safe in His hands the minute that you became born again. Jesus spoke in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus that you must be born again. Now this is speaking of a spiritual birth. Your spiritual birth made you a child of God and forever settled in your position to God. Now when you think about this, we're talking about eternal security here. 
Your biological father will always be your father, right? There is nothing that can be done to change that. You can change your name, but you cannot change the DNA that shows that you're related. The same is with your Heavenly Father. There is nothing that you can do that once you have accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, accepted His death, burial, and resurrection, you are a part of God's family. He is your Father, and nothing can separate you from that love. Your spiritual kinship was permanently settled by the blood of Jesus Christ the moment that you believed. Now, some may say that sin can separate you. No, it cannot separate you from the relationship. Sin can break your fellowship, but it cannot separate you from the relationship with God. Now, there are sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins we know about and sins that we know nothing about. Psalms 19 11 through 13 says, David is asking for forgiveness of his secret faults and the sins that he is not aware of. Ladies, you can be driving down the street, and before you know it, you're going over the speed limit without even knowing it. Not intentionally at all. It just happens. Well, you have broken the law, right? And a police officer could give you a ticket. Did you do this on purpose? Well, maybe sometimes, you know, we go a little bit over speed limit. But then there's other times that you're just driving and you don't realize it, but that speed has crept up on you. Does it make it okay? No. You have still broken the law. And when a police officer comes up to you and you told him, well, I didn't know that that I was going that fast. Do you think he's not going to give you that ticket or buy that? No, you still broke the law. God gives us forgiveness for those sins, even if we don't ask for forgiveness, for those sins that we don't know anything about. 1 John 1, 7 shows how while we are having this fellowship with him, that the blood of Jesus, his son, keeps constantly cleansing us from sins of omission, sins of ignorance, sins that we know nothing about in our lives. These sins would prevent our fellowship, right? Remember, sin breaks the fellowship with God. Well, if you don't know anything about these sins, you don't even know that you've committed these sins, then how are you going to restore that fellowship? With God... If this divine provision of the constant cleansing away of this defilement of sin in our lives was not taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ. All of this, when he died on that cross, he bore our sin. He paid for anything past, present, and future. They've been forgiven. But yes, 1 John 1 9 does state that we are to confess our sins. But this is not to keep our salvation, ladies. It is to restore our fellowship with God. When we sin, our fellowship is broken, not the relationship. You cannot be unborn, right? 
So therefore your spiritual birth secures your position with God. God keeps you in his heart, in his hand, and in his household. Peter made it clear that Christ's death was an appointment, not an accident. For it was ordained by God before the foundation of the world. Now from the human perspective, our Lord was cruelly murdered. But from the divine perspective, he laid down his life for sinners. But he was raised from the dead so that now anyone who trusts in him can be saved for eternity. So in closing, I want you to think this week about these five incentives. Which one motivates you the most to walk in holiness? Think about what practical steps that you can take this week to become more holy. Ladies, we can all grow in our spiritual walk every day. And let's try to see what we can do each day to make our lives better. This lesson is packed with life-changing facts. The question is, what are we going to do with them? Will it change us? Or will we just store it for future reference? Next week we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22. And we're going to go into chapter 2 up into verse 10. So I look forward to doing our study again next week. Until then, God bless.